1903 was a landmark year for American innovation. There were three major changes that happened in 1903, the first of which, and maybe the most famous, happened in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, when the Wright brothers did the amazing thing of figuring out how man could fly. It's still really crazy uh, to think about it, but to think about the fact that they did that in 1903 is still just that much more impressive. And then there was also a guy named Horatio Nelson Jackson, and he said to one of his friends, Sewell Crocker, who is also his mechanic, uh, that we need to figure out how to drive from San Francisco to New York. And when you think about what the road conditions would have been like in 1903, that's just crazy. And so they embark on this journey. It takes them 63 days. They spend about $8,000, and I went on one of those Google money converter things this week. It says that's about $265,000 in today's money. And I know we get upset at the pump sometimes, but that is a crazy uh, journey that these two men uh, completed in 1903. And then there was President Roosevelt who participated in sending the first transatlantic telegram. And to think that there were people that had the idea that we can dig an underwater cable to send messages back and forth across the ocean is equally as impressive, right? That that was an idea, that was a mission that they wanted to embark upon. And this exchange of messages from President Roosevelt to his destination and then the return message, it took about nine minutes for that transmission to happen. And when you think about the world that we live in today, of instant communication, of ease of travel, we have some of these people to thank. These people who had purpose, these people who had a mission, these people who embarked upon something that probably everybody else was telling them, that's a waste of your time. I can't believe you're doing that. You're going to drive from San Francisco to New York. You think you're going to put a plane in the sky? You think you're going to send a message across the ocean? Most people would have scoffed at this idea. And I think the two people we're looking at this morning, Paul and Barnabas, are probably people who had some pushback too. Not only the type of pushback that we've seen from the people that they brought the message to, but I think there were probably some people even in the church, even in this early church, that when they hear about the missions that they're about to embark on, there was probably a little bit of skepticism. You're going to go where? You're going to do what? You're going to go into what area? You have that kind of mission, that kind of purpose, that kind of heart uh, for the Lord. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about these two friends, these two amazing missionaries this morning. But we're going to do so by looking at one of their conflicts. We know that they have two conflicts recorded in Scripture, this one in Acts, and there's another one in Galatians. Uh, But for our purposes this morning, we're just going to focus on this one. So if you will go to that first slide, we'll read our text again. For this morning. So sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord to see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. He had not continued with them in the work, and they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. 
And so we're going to look at the friendship of Paul and Barnabas uh, for our framing of this conflict. And I'll tell you this morning, I've tried to do my best to differentiate when it's Saul and when it's Paul, but uh, even when I'm speaking, I don't always do the best job of making sure I get that chronology right. So uh, I may use the two kind of interchangeably this morning, but this friendship begins uh, with Barnabas and Saul. And one of the things that I've seen as I've looked at several uh, commentators that have approached this text this week, uh, they try to come up with differences. They try to come up with differences between the two men. And, and in doing so, they try to frame the conflict in those differences. But the reality is Scripture doesn't really tell us about many differences. If you're looking for differences, you're really having to stretch. You're really having to do uh, some investigative, almost pop psychology to figure out what Paul was like and what Barnabas was like. Uh, but we do have a lot of texts that speak to their similarities. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, the first similarity that I would like to suggest is that these are men of conviction. These are men of purpose. These are men who have allegiance to a cause. And we see this by the way that each person is introduced in the book of Acts. Barnabas is introduced in Acts chapter 4. And he has a really positive introduction. It tells us that he is a son of encouragement, which we're going to look at here in a minute. Uh, but he comes from Cyprus and he's given this nickname by the apostles, and it tells us that he sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. He put it at their feet, and that said something about what he thought about these apostles. In fact, the phrase, at the feet, is a really significant phrase for Luke. It's one that he uses in both his gospel and throughout the book of Acts. And somebody better than me went through and counted the amount of times that feet occurs in the New Testament and that feet occurs in Luke and Acts. And apparently 43% of all the usages of feet in the New Testament uh, occur in Luke and Acts. And I want to say to that commentator, you need to go get Netflix or something because you got way too much time uh, on your hands to be counting feet. But uh, we see here that this is an important theme for uh, Luke. And the phrase at the feet denotes a sense of devotion and reverence that the giver has for the recipient, as well as the trustworthiness of that recipient. To lay this at their feet was to say, hey, I'm on board with what you guys are doing. I'm on board with your leadership. I'm on board with this new church. I'm on board with this Jesus movement. I want to be a part of this. And when he introduces Saul, uh, we see the same type of at-the-feet language, but it's in a very negative sense. And so he's introduced in the killing uh, of Stephen. And this is a very sad uh, passage that Wes has already covered in our series this year, uh, but I want to read just a part of it because it'll help us later on uh, when we see Barnabas as an advocate for Saul. Uh, we have to remember just how emotional this scene would have been, uh, just how terrible this event of the stoning of Stephen was, but this is when we're introduced to Saul. Chapter 7, starting at verse 54, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and were yelling at the top of their voices. 
And they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Right? That's just crazy behavior, right? They cover their ears. They're yelling at the top of their voices. And they resort to stoning Stephen. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so if Barnabas is introduced in this positive light as the son of encouragement, as someone who is in full allegiance to the early church, the allegiance that Paul uh, has is very different. His allegiance is to the persecution of the church. And the people who are putting their coats at his feet are saying, hey, we're on your side. We're a part of your mission. We have allegiance uh, to you. Uh, and so we see both of them, even though they have allegiance to different causes at first, they may be equally convicted in what they're doing. They're both all-in uh, type of people. And thankfully, because of what happened on the Damascus Road, we see that Paul uh, brings this type of conviction uh, to his Christ followership as well. Acts chapter 9, verse 20 through 25 speaks to Saul's first uh, time in which he is out there representing uh, his new set of beliefs when he's out there on behalf of his newfound faith. It says, At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days he had gone by and there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When you think about this, what an amazing shift. What an amazing transformation. The man who was out there killing people, killing the folks who were members of the church, is now the one being chased, now the one being hunted, now the one who has his life in danger. And we can tell that Saul has gone all in. He's preaching Jesus. People are coming to Jesus. The Jews are out to kill him. And it says here in verse 25 that he's already got followers he already has people that are looking at him as a leader in this movement, as a leader in the way, as a leader in this early church. And that's pretty amazing when you think about what we just read from earlier in Luke's account. And so Paul and Barnabas are both men of conviction who show great allegiance to a cause. And the second characteristic I'd like to point out this morning is they are both men of great Courage. They are men who are willing to do the things uh, that many of us might not be willing to do. And one of the first ways that we see this with Barnabas is the fact that he advocates for Saul. In Acts chapter 9, uh, Saul has been ran out of Damascus and he comes to Jerusalem and he wants to be a part of this uh, faith community in Jerusalem. But it says here in verse 26 when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. 
but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and that how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. When you think about it, these people would have witnessed likely what happened to Stephen, or at least they would have heard about it. And they probably knew him personally. And he may have been a friend of theirs, or at least somebody that they admired. And then they got this Saul guy, this Paul guy coming back to want to be a part of what they're doing. And so their fear is complete. Uh, Their fear is thinking how, you know, we believe in transformation. We believe uh, that God can change people. We believe in Jesus, but we're just not sure uh, that this kind of transformation occurred. And yet it's Barnabas who approaches this man, who approaches this person who is not welcome and brings him to the apostles. And his courage stems because it says he knows about the work that the Lord has done in his life. He knows about what's happened to Saul, and so he has the courage to go and advocate for him. And we know that when Saul is speaking boldly of the Lord, that too, that courage stems from his own personal transformation uh, because of what Jesus has done for him. And so we see that courage is something that both of these men are about. Both of these men live in courage, and maybe it's why uh, they are people that are described as encouragers. Uh, Gary Chapman, he wrote uh, the book Five Love Languages. He provides a definition of encourage, that is the word courage. Encourage means to instill courage. And I'm not sure we think about that a whole lot. I think sometimes when we think about encouragement, it's just kind of nice surface-level platitudes or little compliments we throw in here or there. But to really encourage someone is to speak into them in a way that they have a different type of resolve, a different type of uh, you know disposition towards what they were afraid of before, uh, that they are ready to do something new because of the words that you have spoken into him. And so Barnabas does this for Saul. Uh, Barnabas invites him to come to Antioch. He says, hey, come preach the word with me, Acts 11. We looked at this passage uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people in Antioch. And the disciples were first called Christians, right? He goes and he gets him, and he says, hey, this is where you need to be. He encourages him. He puts him in a place where he can Uh, do ministry, do what he is called to do, and the church is greatly blessed through Paul and Barnabas being there uh, together. It's an act of encouragement. Uh, And one of the things that I think sometimes we see when we talk about this conflict, and there's this real kind of popular movement going on right now in some church circles, and it's kind of looking to make Paul out to be kind of a negative guy, or making Paul out to be somebody who you know, is just not the nicest. And and I don't think that's really fair. Uh, I think if we really read his epistles, yes, there are some uh, times when he's bold in which he confronts things head on, uh, but he's also a great encourager himself. Here's one of my favorite uh, statements of encouragement that comes from his letter to the Romans. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's encouragement right there, right? That's speaking a message to us that should give us the type of courage that we want to go out and do things on behalf of Jesus. They really adopt this, if God is for us, who can be against us mentality. And so the third and final characteristic I want to put forth before we dive in to their conflict might be an obvious one, but they are men of commitment. And one of the ways we see this commitment is Barnabas does something uh, that is pretty hard for us to do sometimes. He kind of passes the leadership baton to Paul, right? When we're in a place of leadership, even when we've picked out somebody who we think is very qualified, is very talented, is very gifted, is maybe even very called by God, sometimes it's still hard for us to let go of our position, to let go of what we have been given. And so uh, Carl Holliday, I think, provides a helpful summary of this transition that occurs in Acts chapter 13. He says, with the shift in the storyline to Syrian Antioch, Saul takes center stage. The mission begins with the phrase Barnabas and Saul as partners, but by introducing a name change from Saul to Paul, Luke quickly places Paul in the leading role. The narrative emphasis shifts from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and his companions. Paul alone gives the first major address in Pisidian Antioch, and thereafter it is Paul and Barnabas, right? This may seem like a little detail, uh, but Luke made sure that we knew about it. Luke changed the phrasing. Uh, Luke showed that there was a shift in leadership. And that's hard. That's hard to pass the baton from one person to another. But for Barnabas and Saul, it's all about the mission. And on this first missionary journey, Barnabas shows us that by his willingness to put his ego aside. And so we see these are men of conviction, of courage, and of commitment. And so why does that help us with this conflict? Why does it help us understand what happens here? Well, the first thing that I'd like to put forward is sometimes when you have these characteristics of conviction, courage, and commitment, conflict is likely, right? Because you believe in what you're doing. You believe in purpose. You believe that you are doing something uh, very, very important. And so you care about what you're doing. And when you care about something, you're more likely to have uh, what is a true conflict, right? We have conflicts that are, you know, just happen due to life circumstance or just happen due to our own flaws or our own, you know, relational dynamics. But this is a different kind of conflict. This is about the future of the mission. And that's what we're about to look at. And so it says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they are doing. And so it seems to suggest here that this is Paul's idea, right? It's another time in which it may emphasize the fact that he's kind of now the leader of this group, right? He's kind of now the leader of this duo who has been traveling uh, together. He says, hey, let's go back and do these things. And what does this mission sound like? Well, it sounds like an encouragement trip to me. 
right? It sounds like they are trying to go and strengthen uh, these young believers. They want to see how they're doing. They care about these people. They want to speak into them. They want to keep them going on the mission that they're a part of. And so from the context, we're not exactly sure the timing on this. If you were to go back and read the chapter that we looked at last week, uh, we know that they're a part of the group that was given the letter. They're given the letter from the Jerusalem Council, and they go back to Antioch, and they share this letter. And they know we know that they're joined uh, by two people from the Jerusalem church in doing this. They're joined by Judas and Silas. And so Judas and Silas come with them, and apparently they're there a period of time. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas stay even longer. Chapter 15, verse 35, which leads into this, says, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So we know that they have been a part of uh, giving the encouragement from overcoming the controversy uh, that we looked at last week, and they have stuck around in Antioch with this church that they love and with this church that has commissioned them uh, before. And so they're seeking a second trip. And so they want to go encourage these young churches. So let's read on in our passage. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take them, to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Right? That doesn't seem like the most positive outcome, that they parted company, that they had a sharp disagreement, and that it's all about this guy named John Mark. So what do we know about John Mark? Right, There is not a lot uh, of references to him in Scripture, uh, but we do have a little bit of information about him uh, that may be helpful to us. The first is, where do we get this name John Mark? In fact, in most of your translations, you actually don't ever have them together. Uh, but there's a lot of Johns in Scripture, uh, and so, you know, we know that he went by John and Mark, and so when we talk about him later on, we often put them together because it helps them know uh, who we're talking about. But John is his Hebrew name, the translation of his Hebrew name, uh, and Mark is his Roman uh, or Latin name. That's why he could go by uh, both interchangeably. Uh, but the first time that he's introduced is in Acts chapter 12, and it's actually in a story about Peter. Uh, Peter is... Uh, rescued from the hand of Herod, uh, and he leaves and he goes looking for somewhere uh, to go. And it seems that he knows about uh, this house church. He knows about this church that is meeting in Jerusalem. So uh, verse 12 of Acts 12 says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. So it seems a safe conclusion to believe that John Mark was someone who was active in the faith, right? His mother uh, seemed to host this uh, church in her house, uh, and John Mark, it seems, was a, a part of that, possibly. Possibly he had a relationship uh, with Peter, and we see this further in Peter's first letter. Uh, he refers to Mark as his son. In 1 Peter 5, uh, 13, in his final greetings, he includes uh, these two greetings, uh, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And so that suggests that he and Peter, they've got a good relationship. Uh, they have a close bond. And if you were to look at church history uh, and to look at 
much of the scholarship about the Gospels, we believe that John Mark uh, was most likely the author of the book of Mark. And many people believe that Peter may have contributed uh, to this uh, Gospel account in some way or another. We don't know the extent of that, but we believe that uh, these two were uh, close. And so in addition to being a friend of Peter, uh, it's widely known that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Colossians 4, uh, John tells us, or I'm sorry, Paul tells us, as does Mark, uh, the cousin of Barnabas, right? He's saying these are people you should welcome, and he gives us this detail about Mark being Barnabas's cousin. And so maybe this is why John Mark was invited on the first missionary journey. He's a relative of Barnabas. Maybe Barnabas saw something in him. Or maybe he just brought his cousin along, right? We don't know uh, all of these details. I've got a lot of cousins. Some of them I see great potential in. Some of them I would have just brought along, right? We maybe all have uh, those kind of cousins. Um, But we see that they brought him anyway. Acts 12, uh, verse 25, taking with them John, also called Mark. So that's our background, right? He's been on this journey with them before. Uh, He's related to Barnabas. He may be very connected in the Jerusalem church. And we get to the big elephant in the room. Why did he leave, right? Where did he go? Why did he desert on this trip? Why did he quit on the journey? Well, the text itself tells us very little. Acts 13.13 says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. That's all we've got, right? That's it. We know that John left and he went back home. And there has been a lot of theories about why he did this. And some of them are quite interesting. And some of them, you know, might be true. Uh, But for sure, we need to to make note of the fact that it doesn't tell us two things in particular. It doesn't tell us that he leaves for any type of doctrinal heresy, right? It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us that he leaves for uh, believing anything uh, that was contrary to what John, uh, what Paul and Barnabas uh, believed. He, it doesn't tell us that. And it also doesn't tell us that he's accused of any type of moral failing, right? It doesn't tell us that the reason he left was because of something uh, that was a spiritual uh, decision, right? It doesn't tell us that. So there's a lot of things out there. Maybe he got scared. We know these are difficult trips that they're on. Uh, we know that they face all kinds of opposition. Uh, that's probably fair. He might have had some anxiety. Maybe he got actually physically sick. We know that Paul got physically sick on some of his travels, but we don't know that. Uh, maybe he simply missed his home, right? I think we can all relate to that. Uh, some of us like home uh, more than others, but nevertheless, we don't really know why he left. Uh, but we do know that it really bothered Paul. And we know that Paul is a person who believes in second chances. He is a person who experienced great transformation. He's somebody who experienced profound forgiveness. And yet this is something that really bothers him. The word here for sharp disagreement uh, only occurs twice uh, in the rest of Scripture in the Greek. And it's actually in the Greek Old Testament. And both of the times that it occurs... It's for God's intense indignation over his people's rebellion, right? 
we know that there were many times in which God's people chose uh, to go a different direction. Uh, And it's quite striking that that's the word that he uses here. But I think because of what we know before, uh, it may be hard to read into that too much. But he is in quite uh, the sharp disagreement here. And so we see that uh, they split. We see that they choose to part company. And we could think of this as a very negative outcome. We could say, okay, they weren't able to work it out. And on some level, that may be true. And there may be a lesson just in that, right? That sometimes things don't work out exactly like we've planned. Uh, But there are two major positive developments that happen because of this dispute. We see here in verse 39 that Barnabas and Mark sail for Cyprus. We'll look at a map here in a second. They sail for Cyprus. We see that Paul chooses Silas uh, to be his new ministry partner. And this was a good thing. Right? They were commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Right, And he goes through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches, which if we go back and look at uh, the Jerusalem Council, these are two destinations that they desired that message uh, to be brought to. And so with Silas, we see that Paul is about to take off on this new journey. And for the next several weeks, Wes is going to be looking at some of these stops that Paul and Silas Go on. And so before we look at that journey, let's learn a little bit about Silas. And so this is from uh, Dean Pinter. I think he adds a nice uh, summary of who Silas is. It says, Paul chose a new partner, Silas, to replace Barnabas. Silas was recently introduced to the narrative. He is a Jewish Christian, possibly a Roman citizen, and likely from Jerusalem, since he was sent as one of their council's envoys to Antioch. And Paul may have come to know him well on their journey to Antioch and in their time spent teaching and preaching there. It tells us that he's a leader among the believers, that he's a prophet, and he's able to articulate how Gentiles relate to a Jewish Messiah. And Paul will travel with him at least as far as Corinth. Although no further mention is made of him in Acts to this point, uh, however, he embarks on his first extended journey with Paul, right? He gets a new partner, and this is a good thing. And we know that many people were blessed by the fact that Paul and Silas uh, traveled together. And so let's look at this uh, geographically for just a second as we uh, finish our our time together. Uh, This is Paul's second missionary journey. It's kind of hard to see there, but you can see uh, it's a big loop. And sometimes when we pull up maps in the high school class, I like to tell the teens that hey, we didn't have smartphones, and so uh, when the sermon kind of got boring, the maps were where we went, okay? In the back of your Bible, this is what we did, right? We couldn't just click out of our app. So we appreciate these maps maybe more than they do. Um, But if you zoom in a little bit, you can see this is where they went. Uh, Paul and Silas went to Tarsus, and Barnabas and Mark sailed to Cyprus. So two completely different directions, two different types of journey, Uh, And yet we see that the gospel uh, was preached. The mission was continued. So what are we supposed to learn from this dispute as we close? And I want to offer three uh, maybe short takeaways that that we can apply to our lives. Uh, And the first of which is neither Barnabas or Paul are criticized for their handling of the dispute. Right? They're not. They're not criticized for the way that this works out. Luke doesn't speak poorly about either of them. 
And sometimes I think we assume that there is no such thing as kind of a good faith conflict anymore. But it seems here that both parties uh, behaved out of what they thought was best for the mission of God in that particular moment. It even says Paul is trying to exercise wisdom about why he doesn't want John Mark uh, to go with them. And so we can see this, that when people really care about uh, what's going on, they may have the right motives, they may even have good character in the midst of the conflict, but it may not always work out in them going together further. And I think that's okay. And I think that should be uh, encouraging to us sometimes. Both parties seem to have assessed the situation the best they could from their desire to continue spreading the good news. The second takeaway is there may be certain missions we aren't equipped to participate in. Right? We don't know uh, exactly how John Mark would have felt about this. We don't know how much John Mark knows about the dispute that's going on between Paul and Barnabas. I would assume he knows a little bit uh, about that, and I bet that was hard. Right? I bet that was hard to listen to the fact that, hey, certain parties don't want you to come on the trip. Right? They don't want you to be a part of this. And yet we see he still stays committed to the faith, right? This could have been an area in which he could have said, no, people are starting to, to not think that I'm, I'm made out for this. I'm going to go uh, and, and quit doing this. But he doesn't do that. Uh, he keeps going. And so maybe it's timing. Maybe it's giftedness. Maybe it's group dynamics. Sometimes we're not set up for certain things, right? Uh, I've been to several mission conferences over the years, and at the end of them, I'm just inspired, and I think, hey, I need to go do foreign missions. And then I remember I was terrible at any kind of languages, right? I still am. I'm horrible at it. Uh, And I think it would be smart if somebody were to say, hey, maybe this isn't your thing, right? Maybe you're not supposed uh, to do this. But we do know from 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Paul and Mark do eventually work together. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And so maybe at a certain time, that was better for them to work together. And the final thing is the church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable, right? This series has challenged me. Uh, I always enjoy Wes's lessons, but a lot of times I leave here thinking about uh, the things that I need to improve on, uh, the things that I need to do to be more committed Uh, to the gospel. Uh, And here we see people that are convicted, courageous, and committed, and they give us that example. And so maybe we too uh, can reinvest in our discipleship, that we can live in the manner of Paul and Barnabas. And so this morning, if there's anything uh, we can do for you, if there's anything that we can pray about, uh, if you need to be reinvigorated in your uh, followership, we'd love to pray about that. If you want to become a follower of Jesus for the first time and take him on in baptism, we would love uh, to celebrate that uh, with you. But if there's anything that we can do, come now as we stand and as we sing.